I'm really grateful that you kind of add some clarification to that. I, I, I didn't ask him to do all that, but it's very sweet that he did, so I appreciate that. But anyways, as uh, Anthony has already mentioned, my name is Rosso Joasson. I'm coming a long way from Phoenix uh, to come and visit you all, and uh, me and my wife. My wife is over there uh, with our five-month-old baby. Um, you guys can wave. Her name is Wandalyn. Uh, but we are... We are excited to be here this morning. Um, we love Flagstaff. We love Anthony and everything that he's uh, doing here. Um, and so we find it a privilege to be here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 21, uh, and we'll be in verses 1 through 19. 1 through 19. All right, so how many of you guys enjoy movies by a show of hands all right so I'm a movie junkie I love movies but I have a pet peeve when it comes to movies one of my pet peeves is I can be locked into a particular movie and it's like full of action everything is like is going great and then the next thing you know this the, the post credit scenes or the scenes or the uh, the credits start to roll and it's like wait a minute what just happened? And it's just all of these lingering questions that I have like in my mind of like, well, what about this character? What happened to this particular person? And it's just almost this feeling of just kind of like incompleteness, right? How, how many Marvel fans do we have in here? Okay, a bunch of you guys, all right? That was me during Infinity Wars, right? And most of you guys probably know what I'm talking about. You see Spider-Man just kind of drifting away in like some, some, some ashes. You got Black Panther, all of these significant characters. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? And then the movie just ends and you're just sitting there like, but, but what? Like, what are you, it's just like some slight trauma that's like entered into your body. You're just like, what, what is going on, right? And how cruel it would have been and if, if Marvel just decided not to to make end games, right? It's just these lingering questions that we will be having of, well, is Spider-Man dead dead? I mean, he has a movie coming out, so like, is, like what, what, you know what I mean? Like, what, what is going on? And so it's kind of like this, I feel like, uh, with, with the book of John. Now, last week when Seth came, uh, he essentially, uh, he, 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 he texted the Thomas, uh, he, he preached the Thomas text, but then at the end of chapter 20, there was this disclaimer that John had put. And he essentially says, and kind of summarizing it, the reason why he writes this whole entire book is for the purpose that people will, re will read it and then they will come into belief about Jesus. And it seems like this is a good place to just kind of like, all right, close the book, put it back on the shelf. It's, you know, it's done. But that's not what ends up happening. John writes this whole nother chapter afterwards, there's this epilogue that we get to go in, and I'm grateful for that. Because if we were to remove the book of John out of the gospel accounts, uh, we only have Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, none of those accounts actually give us closure to the life of Peter. So essentially, if we were just to have those three particular books, where th the narrative would have been Peter denied Jesus, and then you see the, the, uh, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And then you see G, uh, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2 uh, proclaiming the gospel. And it's like, what happened in between? Like, how do we get to this particular moment? 
And so John, what he does is that he kind of clarifies and gives us and, and kind of fills some of these lingering questions that we may have. And so that's where we're at today at the text, in this text today. So I'm not sure how true this is, but I heard this and I thought this was really good, that without this particular text that we're about to dive into today, the, the day of Pentecost would have probably looked a little bit different. Because Peter, carrying all this shame and guilt of what he has done, betraying Jesus, it may have looked a little bit different if, if he hadn't had this reconciliation moment, this restoration moment with Jesus. And so we enter into this particular text this morning. So as we, if you haven't turned there yet, I'm going to pray for us and pray for our time this morning. So... Father, we thank you so much just for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that and as we look at Peter's life, that this can be a reflection of uh, uh, the, the Christian life. Lord, as we've gone through, we go through life and we experience these ups and downs and these failures in our moments, Lord, that you come and you restore us. Lord, you call us by name and you call us back to what you have called us into, Lord. And so we thank you so much. And so I pray that as we go through this text today, Lord, that you will open up our hearts. Lord, I ask that you will speak through me. Lord, I pray that you will speak to your sheep. Lord, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump in, verses 1 through 14 basically kind of sets up this moment between Jesus and, and Peter. And so for these first 14 verses, I want to kind of break down, I want to break it down into like three different categories. So the first one is, is the setting, and then the second one is the, the boat scene, and then the third one is the shore scene. So if you're with me, follow along, I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. So it says this, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So right here we have the setting. Right? John tells us that this is the third time in which uh, Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples. And so the disciples that are present in this particular moment, we have Peter, we have Thomas, we have Nathaniel, the sons of uh, Zebedee, which is James and John. And there's two other disciples that are unnamed. And the location in which they're at is at the, the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called the Sea of Galilee. Now immediately, for me, two things stand out. The first thing is these two unnamed disciples. And then the second thing is they're at the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. So I'm going to address the first one, these two unknown disciples of Jesus. Now, the big question as I was reading this text are, are who are these people? Right? And if you were to conduct a particular search and try to figure out the answers, you'll come across a lot of just brilliant kind of guesses, I would say, about who these particular uh, disciples are. I was reading through a commentary, and one person mentioned that these two disciples, they represent the anonymous and hidden multitudes of faithful souls whose names are never published in human documents, whose deeds are never reported in human reports. 
Now, that sounds super dope. It sounds really cool. But we really don't know who these two disciples are. And the reality is that we probably should just be content with knowing that they're a part of the seven. At best, they're probably just two disciples that have been following Jesus, but they aren't a part of the original twelve. So that's that right there. Another thing that interests me is the fact that they were back in Galilee. And this is their hometown. They're all from the region of, of Galilee. And, and, and out of all things, Peter is thinking about fishing. Now we have to remember this, though, that Peter, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they were told and they're instructed to go back to Galilee. And this was by Jesus. This is mentioned several times in the book of Matthew and also in Mark. But they were never given instructions on what to do while they were there. But what interests me about this is the fact that after these disciples have seen the risen Jesus, they return back to their hometown, and my assumption would have been that they would have been extremely excited to communicate to their friends and people and relatives about the risen Jesus, but that's not the narrative that we get. Instead, we see Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter, who's the leader amongst this whole entire group, he initiates going fishing. The way I picture this particular moment is that they're all kind of sitting around in silence, right, filled with all of this uncertainty. They've been instructed to go to Galilee, but no instructions. They don't know what they're going to do next. Back in Jerusalem, they saw Jesus uh, died, and then he came back to life just stepping through doors. And then he, like, disappears again, and then he comes back again in order to meet with Thomas. And then he goes off again, and now they're in Galilee, and they're just kind of chilling. It's been a few days since they have last saw Jesus, and I imagine Peter just amongst the group, and he's probably thinking, he's probably having these internal kind of wrestles of like, man, where am I with Jesus? Where am I standing with Jesus? To give some context, it's really only been a short span of time since he's denied Jesus. Not too much time has passed. And since Jesus has resurrected and come back again, they haven't had this uh, time or a space to be able to hash out or discuss exactly what happened when Peter denied Jesus. So in a sense, there's kind of like this elephant that's in the room or this elephant that is in the heart of Peter. So I personally believe that Peter is sitting amongst his friends, but he's carrying this shame and he's also carrying the guilt. Some of you guys may know kind of how this feels. Some of you guys are in relationships, whether it's you're married or you have a friend and you're just at odds with one another. But it's very, very hard to kind of return back to kind of uh, some type of normalcy because there's just kind of like this conflicting thing that's in your heart. I believe this is how Peter is feeling. So I picture Peter kind of breaking the silence and saying, yo, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And then the disciples agree to go with him. Now, there's some people who believe that this particular act of the disciples going back to fishing is kind of like a sign that they have backslid or no longer are walking with Jesus. In a sense that they have turned their back from living for Jesus and returned to their 
old occupations or lives. Now, personally, I don't believe this to be true. I personally think that the boys just needed to eat, right? They just needed to survive. There's a particular person uh, by the name of um, Adam Clark that kind of have some thoughts kind of around this idea. He says this. He says, previously to the uh, crucifixion of our Lord, the temporal necessities of himself and the disciples appear to have been supplied or have been supplied by the charity of individuals. As it is probable that the scandal of the cross had now shut up the source of support, the disciples, not fully knowing how they were to be employed, purposed to return to their former occupation of fishing in order to gain a livelihood, and therefore the seven mentioned in John 21 embarked on the Sea of Tiberias, otherwise called the Sea of Galilee. And so essentially, it's kind of reasonable to assume that these guys no longer were being supported, one, because there's probably fear to be connected with Jesus since he has just been crucified, but also just for the sheer fact that, well, the ministry is done, it was a nice, good rodeo, we're out, right? And so these boys had to figure out how to gain some livelihood, and so that's probably one of the more uh, reasonable senses for them returning back and doing uh, and, and going fishing. So right here, we kind of have the setting laid out for us. We have these seven disciples. They're just kind of sitting around, just kind of waiting for Jesus to come eventually. But in the meanwhile, they're at the Sea of Tiberias, and they're going out fishing. So now we move on to this second scene, which is on the boat. So we're continuing verse 3. It says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were, able, they were not able to haul, in, haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. There's so much to be said within these particular Verses. The first thing that John reveals is that they were working and toiling all day and all night, and they came up with nothing. Now put yourself in these particular people's shoes. These are professional fishermen. Just think about it. How embarrassing and maybe even frustrating it is for them at this particular time. Right before walking with Jesus, this was their occupation. This is what they did. But they did not catch any fish. So not only are they thinking to themselves, oh, we're some terrible disciples who abandoned in Jesus in, in, in his most critical times. Peter is probably thinking about, like, how I've denied Jesus. But then it's like, well, I suck at fishing too now. <laughs> to make matters worse, 
There's a particular person off of the shore that's requesting for some fish, is inquiring for some fish. He says, do you have any fish? Now, John makes it clear that this is Jesus that is speaking to the disciples, but the disciples have no idea that this is Jesus. So, and this is probably because there's some, like, fog. The Bible does say that it's 100 yards to kind of give you some reference. It's like, uh, like a football field kind of length, and there's probably some fog in the midst. So this is probably why they don't see Jesus or know that it's Jesus. But they hear this response after they've kind of called out, like, no, we don't have any fish. There's this response from this random person saying, well, cast your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so there's two things here that's worth slowing down and considering during this exchange between the disciples and Jesus. The first thing is how Jesus still continues to guide his disciples, even when the disciples have no clue that it's the Lord that is actually guiding them. To them, this is just some random person that's yelling at them and saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Personally, in in our own particular lives, we must consider and be grateful of the ways in which the Lord is directing us, even when we don't even know. Sometimes the Lord, he guides us through a mouth of a stranger, or maybe through a child, or maybe through a spouse or a friend. Like, God is so big that he can communicate and capture our attention at any time, at any point, even when we're not looking for it. And there's comfort for that because the truth is that God is consistently looking out for us. Another thing to notice here is this certainty of Jesus' tone. I don't know if you guys caught it, but when he's speaking to the disciples, he says this. He says, cast your nets on the other side and you will find some. I'm not a fisherman. I can't even swim. But what do I look like giving advice to some professional fishermen? These are some perfect, they know what they're doing. But you see Jesus here, he has this assurance or this confidence in his uh, voice that if you listen to me, then this is going to happen. You will catch fish. He spoke as one who had authority and power. Right? Both Matthew and Mark records this about Jesus and his Gospels. They both write how crowds were so attracted to Jesus' teaching because he spoke as one with authority and with power. This goes to show that Jesus is sovereign over everything. All of creation, even the little fishies. Right? So Jesus can speak boldly in this particular way because he's the ultimate fisherman of all fishermen. He is all-powerful and he's all-knowing. So the, so the disciples, they cast their nets on the right side. And behold, like Jesus says, there's a plenty, plenty of fish to the point where they're not able to haul this all in. Now, I picture this scene as they're trying to get, every, like get all these fish inside of the boat, that John in his mind, he's just kind of computing and connecting dots. And then he comes to this realization that this is the Lord, and he drops everything. 
There's a particular scene in Luke chapter 5 that tells a very identical story of these fishermen who worked all night and all day and they caught nothing. And in the same way, there's this random guy that tells them to cast their nets on the other side and behold, there's a whole bunch of fish that comes. So much fish that their nets break. In that particular story that is uh, spoken about in Luke chapter 5, the fishermen in that particular story are Peter, Andrew, John, James, and the person that is telling them to cast it onto the other side is Jesus. At this particular point, you kind of have to ask yourself, is this kind of like some setup? Is this all a coincidence or is, is this an intentional thing that is happening? It's almost like deja vu in some sense for, these, uh, for some of these disciples. Now, here are my thoughts. I don't believe that this is some, like some type of accident. What I think Jesus is doing here, I believe Jesus is kind of recreating this moment for Peter, whether Peter like, sees it or not. There's some familiarity within this particular moment. By far, Peter is the biggest loser on that boat. He's the biggest failure on that boat. He just keeps on taking L's. L's means losses, by the way. <laughs> he denies Jesus, and then now he's catching no fish. So it's safe to say that things aren't going well for, for Peter. Peter, in that particular time, was the one who was in most desperation and in most need for some restoration. Peter was the right man, a right-hand man to, to Jesus, and he failed in that calling, in that mission. And all Peter wanted to do, all he wanted to be, was just to be made right with Jesus. And this is why I say this. When John finally connects these dots, he turns over to Peter, and he says, yo, it's the Lord. And now as you kind of read through the Gospels and you kind of see the character development of all these disciples, we kind of know that Peter is the type of person who kind of like acts first, like considers everything else like later. Like Peter is the one who kind of leaves everything behind in order to follow this unknown rabbi. Peter is the one who, who, who jumps and leaps at the opportunity to walk on water as if that makes like logical sense. And then he's also the one that's quick to just cut people's ears off, right? So it's safe to say that Peter has this impulsive behavior or this impulsive kind of personality. So when John says, it is the Lord, it doesn't even take Peter a second to think about it. He throws on his clothes, and then the Bible says he just throws himself into the water. Doesn't even know what's like down there. Just throws himself in the water. And he makes his way. The boat is not even fast for him. He needed to be with Jesus immediately. And we see that in his response. This is convicting, at least for me. Right? How many of us carry that same sense of urgency that Peter has? This particular devotion that Peter has. Has. We tend to criticize Peter often. Sometimes it's rightfully so. He says some dumb stuff. And he does some dumb stuff. 
but it's evident that he loves Jesus. He adores Jesus with all of his heart. It's worth mentioning that in Luke 5, when Peter uh, encounters Jesus for the very first time, his response is to drop down on his knees and say, Lord, get away from me. I am a sinful man. But we see after three years walking with Jesus, being in fellowship with Jesus, when he sees and that he recognizes that is, is Jesus, his response isn't go away. His response is to leap and go towards Jesus. Peter has this understanding that even in all of his failure, there is a home with Jesus. Being with Jesus is safe. It's comforting. There's a scene in John 6 where Jesus has this huge following. And Jesus, he says these things that makes uh, uh, his his followers kind of walk away. And he turns to his original 12 and he says, well, are you guys going to go? Peter is like, no, where, where else are we going to go? We know that you have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the son of God. This is something that Peter believed. There's nothing else in which I can turn to. Even in the midst of my failures, there's, not, there's nowhere else that I can go. Even in his failure, Peter still believed that there is life in Jesus. So now as they make their way onto the shore, we'll read verses 9 through 14. It says, when they got on land, they saw the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and laid out on it and bread. Peter said to them, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, I'll I'll pause there. This is just kind of like an observation. 153 fish, that's a lot of fish. And the Bible says that Peter hauled that in all by himself. Peter was dumb, but he was was jacked and very strong. (laughs) Just make that observation. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In Scripture, there's only two places where there's this reference of a charcoal fire. In this particular text right here in verse 9, we see that. But it's also written out in John 18, 18. In John 18, there's a description of a charcoal fire that was used in order to describe the type of fire that Peter was around when he denied Jesus the very first time. Now, again, I ask this question, is this some type of coincidence Or is this something that is intentional? I picture Peter finally getting on the shore and he's full of excitement. He's seeing Jesus, but then he glances and he sees the charcoal fire and quickly remembers the day in which he rejected Jesus, when he denied Jesus. 
As he looks at this charcoal fire, his greatest failure, he's reminded of his greatest failure. And all this excitement that he probably had for Jesus is kind of quenched in this moment. As he's face to face with his master in which he's betrayed. Now, I'll speak for myself in this point. I know when I'm trying to get to Jesus, when I'm trying to be with Jesus, there's moments where I'm bombarded with all of these insecurities and all of my failures. And I'm left discouraged. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus sits in fellowships with sinners. This is the beauty of the gospel. As long as I'm willing to be with Jesus, I will always have a seat at the table. This is why I love this particular scene so much. Peter, he arrives on the shore with the other disciples, and Jesus had every right to correct them and dress them and say all of these things like, dudes, you guys are so lame, like I was counting on you, you guys left me, you abandoned me, but that's not what Jesus, that's not the way that he rolls. Instead, he prepares waffles and bacon and sausage, right? He, he prepares breakfast. And here's one of the things that we continuously see in Scripture is that Jesus is like the king of invitations. Nobody's going to top Jesus when it comes to invitations. He invites the disciples to eat breakfast with him. In our particular culture of, like, fast food restaurants, we all love fast food restaurants, right? It's quick. It's easy. We don't have this appreciation of sitting and dwelling and being with somebody at a dinner table. In this particular time, when you sat with somebody, when you dwelled with them, when you broke bread with them, this was like a sign of endearment. Like, you, you, like, you guys aren't just sitting around the table and sharing a meal with somebody you don't like. That's kind of awkward. So what this shows me, what this tells me is that Jesus, he's inviting them, but he delights their presence. He wants to be with them. I think the same could be said with you. Jesus wants to be with you. And he's constantly extending these invitations to himself. A couple of them that we see in Scripture, Jesus says to come and see. This is in John 1, 39. He says, come and see. See what I'm about. Come do this thing called life with me. Right, come and learn. This is Matthew 11. Come learn from me. Learn my, my ways. Come and rest. This is Mark 6, 21. You are weary Come receive rest within me. Right? Jesus extends these invitations because he desires fellowship with us. As the disciples are eating their breakfast, there's, there's just something special about this particular moment. There's something that feels familiar, comforting, safe. It's so safe. It feels so good that... Nobody dares to ask Jesus, like, who are you? It's just instinctively that they know that they are in the presence of Jesus. They knew that this was the Lord. 
if you haven't caught it yet, I'm kind of the type of person who kind of reads scriptures and like, I just think about different scenarios. I wonder what kind of conversations was happening at this table or around this fire. Because we have to remember, Peter and Jesus still haven't hashed out this conversation. And I just kind of sense that there was probably some awkwardness. Some small talk, like, what's the weather like? Even though they're outside, they can all see it, right? I imagine that this may be an uncomfortable uh, 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 situation for Peter. There's still this tension between Peter and Jesus. I picture Jesus kind of turning and facing Peter and looking him in the eye and addressing this elephant in the room. Before we read these next few verses, I want to say something about Jesus addressing the elephant of our hearts. I really believe that Jesus wouldn't be loving if he didn't address the elephants in our hearts. Now, what I mean by elephants of our hearts, I'm, I'm talking about the sins and the failures that we decide to kind of keep at arms. Like, we just keep it right here. We don't want to communicate it. We don't want to talk to people about it. We're ashamed about it. We just want to keep it tucked right here. We don't share or address these things because of fear, fear of how other people may look at us. So we just keep it. Maybe you think it's wise. Maybe you're just fearful. But the truth is, is that the longer that you keep hold of these things, is the more you become a prisoner to it. The, the, the failure to allow God to address these things is only keeping you in bondage. You may find it really tough for you to do what God is calling you to do because you carry around so much guilt and shame. Jesus wants to address the elephant. But you're probably like, nah, that's too much. This is, this is for me. Today, I encourage you to let him in. Don't let another moment pass. Allow Jesus to be able to address this elephant that's in your heart. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said, uh, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice that when Jesus addresses this particular elephant, he doesn't start off by reading this long list of sins that Peter has committed, right? He doesn't go to Peter and says, well, you're a failure in this aspect and this aspect. No. Instead, he takes this approach of asking Peter, do you love me? And he asks this three different times. Now I ask myself, man, what kind of approach 
is this? Why ask the same question three different times? I, I kind of personally do this with my own children. Hi. I often use this approach with my children. I have a, a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old who just does things. And normally when I kind of address them on a, on a particular issue, I have to ask them the same question multiple times. And so they try to like finesse their way out of trouble by like coming up with some, you know, story that kind of makes them seem like they're the victim and that they shouldn't be in trouble and stuff like that. But then I look at them and I give them like a certain look and be like, what did you do? And then they begin to confess. And I don't know if this is the particular tactic that Jesus is trying to do. I don't, I don't think that Jesus is trying to uh, extract some kind of truth from, from Peter. Like Peter has already made known, Jesus knows everything. I don't think Peter or, or Jesus is trying to get some type of apology out of, uh, out of uh, Peter in order to move on. The, the common thought around, you know, this, Peter, you know, being asked uh, uh, three times, that after the third time, Peter understood the significance of being asked three times. Essentially, it's, it was this plain reminder of his three previous denials. Adam Clark says, Peter had thrice denied his Lord, and now Christ has given him the opportunity in some measure to repair his fault by a triple confession. Three times, Jesus asked a simple but painful searching question, do you love me? Another thing that I think it's worth paying attention to is the name in which Jesus addresses Peter. It's not the name in which Jesus originally gave Peter. My only thoughts on this is that when Jesus was speaking directly to Peter in that particular moment, he wasn't speaking to Peter, uh, uh, the, the one who name means rock, uh, the, the, what the church shall be built on. He's not speaking to, to Peter, the leader, or, or Peter, uh, the apostle. He's speaking to the person. Like, I just want to speak to, to you. I want to address you. Being in church leadership, sometimes I can forget that. Sometimes Jesus just wants to meet with me. And the same could be said about you guys. All of you guys hold different roles and occupations uh, during the week. Jesus just wants to meet with you. Despite the role that you have, despite the roles that you may be playing, at the end of the day, you're a son. You're a daughter, and Jesus loves you, and he wants to meet with you. Three times Peter affirms his love for Jesus. He says, I do love you. I do love you. I do love you. And three, uh, three times Jesus gives this grieving yet humble disciple this commission to be a shepherd. He says, tend my sheep. He says, feed my lambs. He says, Feed my sheep. It's interesting to see that when Jesus is addressing Peter's response, all of these feed, tend, feed, these are action. These are verbs. 
And it's almost as if Jesus is trying to help us connect the dots that love is connected to action. Right? We don't just express love by just mere words, but we express love by getting up, getting out of our seats, and, and, and practicing love. To love God means to love his people. And we display that not by just mere words, but by our actions. There's a quote by Alexander McLaren. He says, Jesus Christ asks each one of us, not for obedience primarily, not for repentance, not for vows, not for conducts, but for our heart. And that being given, when we give our heart, everything else will follow. What Jesus wants out of Peter, what Jesus wants out of us, he wants our hearts. He knows that if he gets that, then everything else will follow suit. So here is my question to you. Does, does, does Jesus have your heart? Does he have your heart? In this scene right here, we see Jesus restoring Peter back to his calling of shepherding. Jesus restores Peter in the presence of all of the disciples, causing him to face his failures. But then Jesus challenged Peter to set his eyes on the work ahead. I don't know if you guys have like a period where you like call the band back up. Kind of, maybe so. That. Thanks, coach. Verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter is finally restored. He's back in good standing with Jesus. They're all good. They're shaking hands. They're clapping. And five seconds into being restored, Jesus says, he gives him the inside scoop of his life. Jesus essentially says, welcome back and oh, you're going to die for me. Now many people, even me, instinctively, would read this and be like, this is absolute trash. It's probably some strong words, but you get what I'm saying. Like, this is absurd, right? Peter's just confessed his love for Jesus, and now Jesus is saying, you're going to die for me. Most people may think that this doesn't make sense. They thought that a relationship with Jesus, what it meant is that there wouldn't be any pain or there wouldn't be any hurt. But the misconception is that love doesn't always grant safety. I read this and I'm thinking that Jesus has some totally, like he just, he's not really well with timing. Right? It's like Jesus has this bad habit of saying the wrong things at the wrong time. Like when he's at the peak of his ministry and he has a huge following, he decides to tell the people, yo, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then they all just go away. It's almost like Jesus is trying to purposely sabotage his ministry. But here's the thing. I believe verses 18 and 19 
These are words of assurance for Peter. Because you have to realize, if you put yourself into Peter's shoes, in the crucial moments a week before, Peter denied Jesus three times in order to avoid the cross. In this particular moment, Peter's biggest concern isn't where his next meal is going to come from or where he's going to lay his head. His biggest concern is, is he ever going to walk away from Jesus? Will this happen again? Will there be a day in which I just, I'm not following Jesus? These are the things that is haunting and lingering in his mind. But Jesus gives him assurance that he would face the challenge of the cross again, but this time he will embrace it. Jesus promised Peter that he would die in utter faithfulness to his Messiah and Lord. And I bet as Peter was hearing this, he wasn't fixated on all the details being stretched out, being carrying to places in which he doesn't want to be. He is just happy and ecstatic at the fact that when he dies, he'll die as a believer. As one who is faithful to Jesus. Ancient writers say this. About 34 years after this particular moment, Peter was crucified. And Peter deemed it so glorious of a thing to die for Christ that he begged to be crucified with his head downwards. Not considering himself worthy to die in the same posture in which his Lord did. As we see Peter's life and devotion to Jesus, it comes with much suffering. And the reality is, despite if you are a believer or a non-believer, the way in the world that we live in right now comes with much suffering. It's inevitable. But like Peter, will we die being followers of Jesus? Will we endure the suffering and cling on to Jesus till our dying breath? So to kind of wrap everything up all this morning, Jesus' last words to Peter in this particular conversation to the disciples were, follow me. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter meets Jesus for the very first time, Jesus says to follow me. And at that particular time, Peter didn't really get or understood what it meant to follow Jesus. But now three years and some change afterwards, Peter is fully aware of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means going the way of the cross. Leslie Newbegin, he says this, he says, the following along the way of the cross will glorify God. For just as Jesus manifested the glory of God in his death, so the same glory will be manifested in the disciples whom Jesus sends into the world. That's you and me. That's us. Today, as we close, here's what I want you to hear. And as we transition into a moment of reflection and prayer, I want you to hear the call, follow me from Jesus. For some of you guys, maybe this is the first initial call from Jesus. 
Up until this point, you haven't been a believer, but today, for some reason, you feel the whisper of follow me in your heart. I would encourage you to make that step, to accept that invitation. Or maybe this is the second time, and like Peter, you kind of veered off the path a little bit. But you hear Jesus calling you, saying, follow me. Keep on following me. I encourage you to let Jesus address some of the sinful and shameful parts of your heart and allow him to restore you the same way in which he's done with Peter. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I want you to consider the call. Follow me. I want to pray for you guys as we close our time out together. Father, you know the depths of our hearts. You know the, the things that reside there. The things that we're ashamed of. The things that we have done. Father, I pray for each and every individual who is here, Lord, that um, as we sit and reflect, Lord, I pray that your voice would just be louder than any other doubt, worry, fear, shame, that your voice would be louder than all of those. Lord, the same way in which you've kept Peter, even when he veered off, how you continuously shown your love and how you've moved towards him, how you moved towards the disciple, Father, I ask that you would do that in this particular moment. I pray that there'll be an experience where just like the disciples around the the charcoal fire. They didn't have to ask, is this the Lord? They just knew. Father, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.